The History Channel Original Podcast. Sports History This Week, January 14, 1964. I'm Kalen Jones. Boston is covered with snow. The city is frozen. But inside the Boston Garden, over 13,000 fans are crammed in to witness one of the most exciting, star-studded nights on the sports calendar, the NBA All-Star Game. It was a huge event, a marquee event for the National Basketball Association. The All-Star Game is supposed to be lighthearted. The best players from around the league get together on one court for a full-length exhibition game. It's meant to be fun, a celebration of the game of basketball. But the atmosphere in Boston on this night is tense. Normally, the players would be taking practice jump shots and layups, perhaps even a few dunks to get some oohs and ahs from the crowd. But with just minutes to go before tip-off, the court is empty. The owners are sweating it out. The players were sweating it out because, you know, there's a ton of stakes for them, obviously. And the executives, the ABC television executives, they were sweating it out as well. The fans began stomping their feet to show their frustration. Little do they know that the All-Stars, featuring some of the biggest names in basketball history, are all sitting nervously together in one locker room, while a team owner screams obscenities at them through a locked door. The players are taking a stand, one that they believe in, but one that is undeniably risky. Their professional reputations and possibly their entire careers hang in the balance. What happens over the course of the next 20 minutes will reshape not just basketball, but the rights of athletes in sports across North America and Europe. And yet... It's a hugely important topic, obviously super relevant to today that nobody talks about or probably, I suspect, knows about. Today, the 1964 NBA All-Stars revolt against a collection of powerful league executives and team owners to secure their rights as athletes, as employees, as human beings. They saw a, a really good opportunity to be heard and to, and to stand a firm ground. What are these players fighting for? And how do they pick the perfect moment to have their voices heard? and change the league for generations to come. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The list of players invited to the 1964 All-Star Game reads like an ultra-exclusive wing of the Basketball Hall of Fame. Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West... Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson, Bill Russell, MVPs, Hall of Famers, game-changing icons. Yeah, guys like Elgin Baylor, 
who are like the prototype for a Dominique Wilkins, LeBron James, kind of like the modern hybrid, big athletic forward. There's other guys like, like Jerry Lucas or Lenny Wilkins or Hal Greer, who are, who are huge stars of the time. It's hard to imagine that a collection of legends like this would face anything other than universal respect and admiration from the NBA. And yet, back in the 1960s... They weren't even employees because employees have some degree of, of rights. Dave Zerum is a basketball journalist and author of NBA 75, The Definitive History. The players were assets. The players were like dollar signs with sneakers. I don't know how to say it, it was super f***ed up. For starters. There was no free agency. There's no kind of freedom of movement. Players were really like beholden to the team they played for. Meaning, if you have an argument with your coach or you want a new contract, or you need to take a night off the rest, you have absolutely no leverage. Bill Kenville, who played in the NBA from 1953 to 1960, says that his player contract had 38 provisions, and every one of them is for the owner, adding, you never saw anything so unilateral. And when the team has all the power, they can do things that might seem insane to modern fans. For example, the Lakers' schedule for the 1963-64 season includes a stretch in which they play five games in six nights in four different cities. In addition to their 72-game season schedule, teams must also play as many as 15 exhibition games in smaller towns across the country. They would get a ton of Saturday night into Sunday afternoon games, and their bodies just could not handle it. That's Rich Krejci, co-host of the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast. We're talking about big men that are that are doing an athletic game, getting on a coach flight or bus or whatever, and you know, eight hours later, getting back on the court, and they're just saying like, "Dude, we can't, do, we can't keep doing that." And, and it was all done in the name of growing the growing the league. Really, it was done to sell tickets. The more games you play, the more tickets you can sell. The hectic schedule, combined with the fact that these players are jamming their seven foot tall frames into commercial airline seats, leads to a ton of injuries. And guess what? There weren't trainers on teams, so what, what that meant often was a small injury would cost a guy his entire career. Elgin Baylor, a star player for the Los Angeles Lakers, writes about his chronic knee pain during the 1963-64 season in his biography, Hang Time. He says that at just 29 years old, he feels like an old man, but that Lakers coach Fred Schaus refuses to give him a night off, or even reduce his playing time. Baylor's teammate Jerry West rumbles to the media about how Lakers owner Bob Short needs to start taking care of his star players. It was a rough scene, as a result, players were getting hurt constantly. And despite everything these players are putting up with, they are wildly underpaid. Player salaries are around like $7,500 at this time. In 1964, I'd make $15,000. That's Hall of Famer Wayne Embry, a five-time NBA All-Star from 1961 to 1965. He was also the first Black general manager in NBA history, and he currently serves as a senior advisor to the Toronto Raptors. I made more my uh, playoff bonus two years ago than I made my entire 11 years as a player. Even superstars have to work a second job during the summers. I work for two beverage companies in different years. And my first couple years with Cincinnati Royals, I sold season tickets during the offseason. Just imagine LeBron James spending his summers doing ticket sales over the phone for the Lakers. 
lot of the guys had side jobs. Paul Arison, one of the greats in NBA history, actually you know, retired from the league fairly early, then left to join IBM. In an attempt to fight back against these indignities, Celtics point guard Bob Cousy organizes a players' union in 1954. Other leagues like the NFL and MLB have similar unions at the time, but the common thread among them? It was never really officially recognized by the owners in any sort of way. Fred Zollner, owner of the Pistons, was absolutely gung-ho. It's like, I don't have unions in my industry. I'm not going to have unions in the NBA. Cousy is ignored repeatedly in his attempts to voice the needs and wishes of his fellow players, and he almost leads a boycott of the All-Star Game in 1957, trying to force the owners to provide the players with a pension plan. The All-Star Game is played as scheduled, but a frustrated Cousy eventually passes off the union responsibilities to teammate Tommy Heinsohn in 1962. Heinsohn came in, you know, in an incredibly racist culture, a league that in the 50s was still a racist league. He helped guys like Russell and, and the African-American players who were not getting a fair shake. But basically, Heinsohn was a great teammate on and off the court. But even with the respected and well-liked Heinsohn leading the way, the Players' Union continues to be ignored by NBA Commissioner Maurice Podoloff, who is described as a well-known friend to the owners. Podoloff has the players physically shut out of any negotiations about their working conditions. The players got no respect from those conversations. More often than not, they would be told, you know, you wait in the lobby, we'll bring your lawyers up to the offices and we'll talk to them and then they can tell you what we said. Even after bringing in labor attorney Lawrence Fleischer to help run the union, Heinzen is still ignored by team owners. And for the very first time, he considers the possibility of boycotting the 1964 NBA All-Star Game. In October of 1963, Heinzen approaches his friend Elgin Baylor and says, if the owners keep messing around, quote, we may have to do something big. It's no accident that Heinzen comes to Baylor with this plan. Baylor has first-hand experience in this arena. In 1959, the Lakers, then the Minneapolis Lakers, traveled to West Virginia for a game against the Cincinnati Royals. A local restaurant wouldn't serve the team's three black players staying at the team hotel. Baylor, then just a 24-year-old rookie, refused to play in the game, saying, I like playing in the league very much, but not at the expense of my dignity. Baylor was criticized by Lakers owner Bob Short, who called him, quote, high-strung and blamed his absence for the Lakers' loss. Commissioner Podoloff also took a shot at Baylor, saying that the black players who did play in the game did more good than Baylor. So, Elgin Baylor knows what it's like to take a stand, even against the powerful owners he plays for. And yet, here he is, ready to do it all again. And there's reason to believe that this time will be different from Cousy's failed attempt seven years earlier. In 1964, they had more leverage than they had in 57. They had Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, who was a multiple, multiple, multiple time champion this time too. They had real genuine stars who actually were attracting fans and who had power. The ambitious team owners of the NBA have spent the early part of the 1960s aggressively trying to grow the sports fan base and revenue. That's their reasoning for the packed travel schedule. The league just wasn't as popular as some other sports at the time. Basketball was, was a peripheral sport, just like a traveling kind of exhibition side show. 
not to diminish what the NBA was, but essentially when you compare it to other professional sports at the time, that's what the NBA was. The NBA is way behind the National Football League, Major League Baseball, and professional boxing in terms of popularity. Even amateur sports, like college football and college basketball, outranked the NBA. It was being viewed by, you know, the handful of thousands of fans in the stands that night, and that's it. Some guys like, like Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, you know, Bill Russell, I mean, people will know who they are, but maybe they haven't ever seen them play. They applied their trade in, like, relative anonymity. But the NBA has big plans to change all of that. Before the 1963-64 season, J. Walter Kennedy takes over as NBA commissioner. A man known for his marketing prowess, he spent the previous decade as the publicity director for the Harlem Globetrotters. And most importantly for the league, he had experience in TV, so he helped secure that TV deal. He had those connections. Sure enough, Kennedy lands a deal with ABC for the rights to broadcast 17 NBA games. And the first game on that slate, the 1964 All-Star Game. This is the real one. This is the real chance for the NBA to show itself. This is the tryout for, can they get on TV? Is it a viable, even a TV option? A high-profile, televised event featuring the game's biggest stars is the perfect opportunity to reach millions of new fans. It's also the perfect opportunity for the players to show the team owners that they are united in their demands. Yet leading up to the All-Star Game, only a small inner circle of NBA players are even aware of this possibility. Baylor doesn't tell his teammates about the plan. He doesn't even tell his wife, Ruby, who's pregnant with their second child. Heinsohn and Baylor need secrecy. They don't want any leaks. They don't want the owners to find out and thwart their efforts before they get going. Baylor later says the union is asking for, quote, a decent pension plan, a less brutal travel schedule, a larger meal allowance, and as my knees continue to ache and burn, full-time doctors on every team. We're not talking about like, oh, I want access to the company jet or the kind of things that players get today, might get today. We're talking about basic employee rights. Still, Heinzen knows that all of this will be a battle, but that the pension plan in particular is the most important and likely the toughest to get. Owners were adamant about not giving a pension. That was the whole uh, purpose to get the NBA a pension for the player to have to retire. The NFL, NHL, and Major League Baseball all have escalating pension plans for their veteran players by 1964 based on how long they play. But the NBA owners? Not gonna happen. Celtics owner Walter Brown famously tells the players, I don't have a pension. Why should you guys have one? It was a occupation with essentially no job security. So the, so the players wanted a pension, some sort of guarantee that they'd be looked after in some sort of way when their careers ended, which happened a lot faster than today. Commissioner Kennedy claims that his predecessor sent a pension proposal to the union the year before. Heinsohn later refers to this as a phantom pension plan that was never sent to him and quite possibly never existed in the first place. Still, before taking the nuclear option of sitting out of the NBA's first televised All-Star game, Heinsohn wants to give the owners one more opportunity to come to the negotiating table. In Boston, the day before the All-Star game. But... There was a snowstorm on the East Coast, a huge snowstorm, and we couldn't get into uh, anywhere in any city on the East Coast. A nor'easter brings upwards of 12 inches of snow to some areas. Boston-bound flights are delayed or even canceled. 
as is the proposed meeting between the NBA Players Union and team owners. All-star John Kerr tells Newsday, If it weren't for the weather, we would have a pension plan today. Diverted planes and altered itineraries caused some players to arrive at the team hotel in Boston just hours before the game is supposed to start. There's no time for a big official sit-down. But that won't stop Heinzen, Baylor, and more from having their voices heard. The players knew that, you know, if this game were to happen, it would be potential disaster. This could, the league could fold as a result of something like that. You had this incredibly high leverage situation where the owners and players both knew the stakes. A massive protest in front of millions of fans across the country seems all but inevitable. In the words of Elgin Baylor, This is either brilliant or suicide. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Elgin Baylor and Jerry West fly from California to Boston two days before the 1964 NBA All-Star Game, allowing them to avoid the blizzard on the East Coast. But not every player is so lucky. Here's former NBA All-Star Wayne Embry. We uh, played a game at Cincinnati on a Saturday night, and we attempted to leave Sunday to go to Boston, but we flew to uh, Minneapolis, where we called spent the night, and then flew to Washington and took a train up to Boston the next day. We got there about 6 o'clock in the evening, the day of the game. As other players make their way to Boston, the site of the 14th annual NBA All-Star game Players Union President Tommy Heinsohn presents NBA Commissioner J. Walter Kennedy with a letter containing the Players Union demands, including an in-house doctor on every team, a pension plan, and a more reasonable travel schedule for the season. Without taking any immediate action, Kennedy promises that these issues will be brought up at the next owners meeting in a few months. But Heinsohn knows better. He's been led on by the league office for years and he won't wait any longer. He makes it his mission to speak directly with the incoming players, some of whom have no idea what they're walking into. I had no knowledge of what was going on. I didn't know anything about not playing the game until I got to Boston. Heinsohn catches them up to speed as they arrive. I recall Tom Heinsohn meeting us in the lobby of the hotel as we were prepared to check in. We were a little bit taken aback, but he seemed very urgent and uh, 
So it's very important. This is critical meeting. Heinzen presents his fellow All-Stars with a petition, which states that if their demands are not met, they would be willing to sit out of the All-Star game. Of course, talking about a boycott is one thing, but Heinzen's petition is the first official temperature check about how willing the players would really be to go through with it. 11 of the 20 players sign on. Nine refuse. Again, here's Dave Zarum. It's not like it was a unified a unified situation. You had a divided locker room. The people chiefly in favor of striking were Bill Russell, Lenny Wilkins, Tommy Heidson. These were traditionally the more outspoken players to begin with. And on the other side? You had guys like Will Chamberlain, who was the game's biggest celebrity by miles and really, I think, valued the exposure of a nationally televised game like this and saw the merit in that for, for what we would say today, his brand. And for the players that, you know, maybe aren't as famous as Wilt Chamberlain, what's their reason for wanting to play? The fear was that they would lose their jobs. The people in charge, they know the power they wield, and that power is immense. You had this kind of spirited debate going on between the likes of Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain, all the top players at the time, Elgin Baylor. They're all discussing, should we or shouldn't we? Meanwhile, Kennedy and the team owners have no idea that a mutiny is forming. They spend the afternoon in a lengthy meeting to discuss some possible changes to the league's constitution. Kennedy is reportedly told on three separate occasions during this meeting, call Lawrence Fleischer, the lawyer representing the players' union. And all three times, Kennedy ignores the message. So, just before 6 p.m., Heinzen, Pettit, Russell, Wilkins, and Fleischer approach Kennedy in his hotel room. The players say, all right, you know what? Get all the owners together before game time and put in a writing that we're going to do this pension thing and then we'll go out there and play. Kennedy goes, well, there's no way I could possibly do that. It would be impossible. And then leaves the room and basically gets all the owners and they say, yeah, we could do it, but we don't want to. The locker room, once divided nearly 50-50, begins to shift more and more in favor of a boycott. It strengthened the players' position that like, okay, you know what, these owners actually, I don't think they're really looking out for our best interests. You know, in fact, they might be looking out solely for, out for their best interests, which is absolutely the case because we clearly don't have the respect from the owners that we deserve, which is being manifest in all these ways, including them not even be willing to seriously negotiate with us. The players at this point are out of options. We uh, took a vote, it was 18 to two, that we not play. Heinzen would later say that, by the end of the night, the boycott was actually supported by 19 out of 20 in the locker room. Regardless of the count, at 8.30, Commissioner Kennedy is told that there won't be a game tonight. The national broadcast is supposed to start in 30 minutes. And as the reality begins to set in for the owners, the tunnels of the Boston Garden become home to a chaotic scene. The owners were panicked upon hearing that the players weren't going to go out there. Fleischer was negotiated with owners, running back and forth between the owners' offices in the, in the arena at Boston Garden and the players' locker room. Just running back and forth, relaying where each side was at. The players were, were just kind of in the locker room, waiting for updates and watching the clock tick. As they get closer and closer to game time, the owners go from impatient to angry to outright menacing. A lot of threats, every we stayed in that room. Various owners came in, told us we're out of our mind. We made some call hands. Profanity, which we don't need to discuss. Commissioner was pacing back and forth and 
trying to uh, reason with us, but we were very adamant in our position. Heinzen, playing in his home arena in Boston, even goes so far as to hire a local police officer to guard the locker room door. Finally, one team owner decides that he's had enough. Bob Short walked over to Jerry West and just says, if you don't play in this game, you're probably never going to play again. And Jerry West said, well, then I'm never going to play another game. And Short's outburst is far from over. According to Heinsohn, Short begins screaming at the police officer. You go tell Elgin Baylor that if he doesn't get his ass out here fast, I'm done with him. Shocking disrespect towards a star player, a Lakers legend. Not to mention... The emptiest threat possible, because without Baylor and West, like, what does he have? Baylor fires right back. And Baylor, through Fleischer, uh, famously said, well, you can tell Bob Short he can go f*** himself. It's now perfectly clear that the NBA All-Star game is off. The owners won't budge, and neither will the players. But a third party suddenly comes into the picture. It was the television executives who said, you know, it's a disaster for us to have dead air for this long. If you don't have a product on the court within a matter of minutes, we'll be out of the basketball business altogether. Once that threat was made, the owners acquiesced pretty quickly. Within a matter of minutes, they essentially gave in to all the players' demands. They excused themselves. The back said, okay, you expertise, we'll work on a pension for you. A pension plan suddenly materializes. So do promises of easing the schedule, official recognition of the NBA Players Union, and a number of player-friendly improvements to the league. The game is supposed to start at 9 p.m., 8.55. Bob Pettit comes out of the dressing room and tells the league, yeah, we'll play. The game is on. The standoff is over. The players have won. Specific deal points are still being hammered out behind the scenes while the All-Stars are being introduced on the court. And possibly the strangest part of the night, after all the fireworks, the name-calling, the animosity, the players just jog out onto the court and play a game of basketball. But there, I started warm up. They blew the whistle, pressed play because, you know, with TV, you're on time schedule. We walked out and then you need 4 50, so I'll got to play the game. And now that was behind us, so we went out and played the game. At halftime, Bill Russell goes out to the middle of the court to receive the MVP award for the previous season from Commissioner Kennedy. The two of them smile and wave at the fans who have no idea what just went down before the game. I don't think sports journalism or sports broadcasting at the time was particularly concerned with the backroom dealings, uh, even in a situation this dramatic. I suspect for the owners, the players to a degree, and certainly the television executives, the best course attack was to resume the game as if nothing happened. In the immediate aftermath of the game, the Daily News Post runs the headline, NBA narrowly avoids collapse. Kennedy is praised for his handling of the situation, with the Associated Press speculating that if the commissioner, quote, was not as persuasive as he apparently was, it could have signaled the end of the NBA. But some of the key figures involved are not quite ready to forgive and forget. Celtics owner Walter Brown says he's burned up and sore about the whole affair and calls Heinsohn, quote, the number one heel in my long association with sports. Brown even claims that if I had a team in Honolulu, I'd ship him there. The owners weren't happy about it, but I think pretty much uh, for the most part, everyone just did business after this. 
the good thing for Heinsohn to a degree is that he was closer to the end of his career, so it wasn't like he could really be punished too much. Tensions do eventually die down. Five months later, the NBA publicly announces the players' new pension plan at the same meeting where they announced the league's first national TV deal. The NBA's other promises to improve playing conditions are genuine, but they're certainly not immediate. For example, the Celtics play on Christmas Day in New York City the following season. They then play the next day in St. Louis, the next day in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the next day after that, back home in Boston. But progress is progress. The biggest one is that they officially recognized the union, which obviously set the groundwork for decades of labor negotiations that followed. A players' union for Major League Baseball is officially recognized just two years later, in 1966. The NHL's players' union in 1967. I think all it does is kind of underscore the significance of this moment, not just for basketball, but for professional sports in North America and abroad. The guts that the players showed just to be able to put their rights on the line at such a crucial time with such stakes involved, I think all of it caused players from other sports to, to pay attention. They stuck their necks out knowing that, hey, we could screw this whole thing up, but all the credit to all those dudes for just saying, you know what, screw it, let's try it. They played their cards exactly perfectly and helped you know, really lay a foundation for player empowerment in the NBA. Today, NBA players benefit from a strong union, most notably the freedom to move between teams. And a lot of the reason for that is because of the sacrifices that these early greats made. The 64 All-Star Game, is, it's the big bang in terms of professional athletes having a voice for themselves, at least in pro basketball. It, it was really where it all started. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1973. The Miami Dolphins beat Washington 14-7 in Super Bowl VII to complete what is still the only fully undefeated season in the Super Bowl era. And also 1973. 24 Major League Baseball team owners vote for a massively impactful rule change, the designated hitter. If you'd like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guest, Dave Zaram, NBA journalist and author of NBA 75, The Definitive History. Rich Krejci, co-host of the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast. And Wayne Embry, NBA Hall of Famer and currently a senior basketball advisor to the Toronto Raptors. This episode was produced by David Ingbert. It was story edited by me, Kalen Jones, and sound designed by the Poglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.